This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin. Heard every Saturday morning at 9 on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Welcome, friend, to our weekly garden party. We hope you brought along your questions because it's time to dish the dirt. On The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin, exclusively on Zoomer Radio. Well, good morning. I'm Frank Proctor, and I'm proud to say I'm the sous chef of The Garden Show, or as Charlie Dobbin would say, the under, under, under gardener. (laughs) Exactly, Mr. P. I couldn't have said it better myself. Well, good morning, Charlie. Oh, listen, before we do anything else, please indulge me for just a moment. Oh, no. What have you got up your sleeve? Oh, no, no. Nothing is not nothing bad. Just just an observation. All righty, then. Proceed, Franklin. All righty. I was just thinking (laughs) of you the other day and realized that when I think of you, Charlie Dobbin, Master Gardener on Zoomer Radio, do you know what image I have of you? <laughs> I'm kind of afraid to ask, but go ahead. <laughs> no, no, listen, of all the mental pictures I could conjure up when I think of you, you know, the, the picture you have posted on your website, charliedobbin.com, or the picture of you on Zoomer Radio website, uh, the image I have in my mind is of you at your old place in Richmond Hill, sprawled in the front lawn, weeding, all the while dragging your wine bag along. (laughs) Well, that's a charming sort of a sight. Thanks so much. Now folks are going to think I'm a lush. And just for your information, I didn't sprawl. (laughs) No, no. I'd like to say you're a woman who knows how to enjoy life. (laughs) Uh, Nice try, Mr. Proctor. I tell you, it'll be some time before I'll be dragging the wine bag along here in Prince Edward County. Or, if I tried, I really would become a lush. I've got a bumper crop of weeds going on across my two-acre lot as we speak. However, I have plans that this will all change quite soon. We're just working with some different contractors to finalize the list of trees and shrubs and working out best paver patterns when it comes to walkways and patios and fire pits. It's all quite daunting, actually. I've never dealt with such a large blank slate before. So, in other words, you got your hands full. Pretty much. Speaking of hands, mine are holding lots of emails I've received since last Saturday's show. Okay, Charlie, maybe it'd be a good time to mention a few things about the show. Well, number one, since we're both recording this show on Tuesday morning, you from your new home and me from our home on the farm near Newmarket, uh, we're not live from the studios at the Zoomerplex in Liberty Village, so that means we can't take any phone calls. So, And that also means that you listeners have to help us out by emailing us questions that we'll use for next week's show. Okay, here's the address. C.Dobbin, that's D-O-B-B-I-N, at mzmedia.com. You've already mentioned my website, charliedobbin.com. Thanks for that, Frankie. Um, That's where you can find a slew of tips that listeners have passed on to me over the many years we've been doing the show. 
Oh, and just in case you miss anything on today's broadcast, keep in mind, you can always re-listen to any show by going to Zoomer Radio and checking out the podcasts. There you go. Oh, uh, just before we take our next break here, our first break, I, I just want to allude to a nice note I received from Gene Stevens. Remember we gave him a shout out last week on the show? Yes. He said, uh, he wrote me a little note here. I won't read the whole thing. Just He said, how wonderful to wake up to my favorite Saturday morning garden show hosts and hear such nice things said about me. I still listen and love your show and, and he underlines this and still haven't grown a green thumb so I don't think that's going to happen but I listen for the fun banter. Thanks for keeping us all informed and entertained gardeners and not from Gene Stevens. Bless your heart Gene. Yeah that was sweet. Well you betcha and right you are Charlie we've just received a cue from our main guy uh, who is on the tech side of things, Joel, who is in front of his computer at home, and it's time for our first break. So we'll be back in just a few moments. Charlie Dobbin here on Zoomer Radio on the Garden Show. Don't change stations just because the weather changes. Garden tips and advice all year round. This is the Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin, exclusively on Zoomer Radio. Well, Charlie, we're all set to answer some of those questions that have been coming in via email. And I know last week I promised Jennifer Kehoe that she would be the first person we dealt with. But I suddenly discovered that through, I think, my fault, that uh, a note from Adrian has been sitting on the desk here for about two weeks. So let's get to that first. Then we'll get to Jennifer's question from Adrian. He says, Brand new gardener, do I plant annuals or perennials in my brand new garden? <laughs> well, that's a great question. I can just see a brand new garden, another blank slate, right? Where do we start? Yeah. Um, okay, so what, what's the difference between annuals and perennials? Annuals are going to last for one year only. Most annuals are grown for their beautiful flowers that will flower all summer. So whether it's petunias or geraniums or marigolds or whatever the annual is you choose, you've got that nice show happening throughout the entire season. Whereas perennials, on the other hand, will should last beyond this one year and should come up again next year and for many years to come. So many people consider them a better investment when it comes to the economics of gardening, but you know, pay once and and have the the glory of the plant for many years. However, most perennials do not bloom all summer. As a matter of fact, very few do. Most will bloom for anywhere from a week to two weeks, sometimes maybe three weeks, but just a portion of the summer will give you the flowers. So if you only rely on perennials and you only rely on, say, the ones that are blooming now, you'll have a beautiful garden every spring and a very green garden for the rest of the summer and in the fall. So choosing perennials, you need to choose them that will bloom at different seasons, which can be a bit challenging you've got to do some research. I always like to incorporate some annuals into all new gardens because you've got big spaces to start with, right? Remember, the plants are going to grow and fill in. So when we plant a garden properly, we space out the shrubs, the trees, the perennials, so they can reach their full size, which means that we've got pretty big spaces between them, and annuals are a wonderful filler for the first, you know, two, three, four years. You, uh, you know, just bang in some pops of color and and over the years, you have less and less space and fewer and fewer annuals will fit. So that's my recommendation to Adrian. Okay, thank you very much. 
Uh, here's a note from the Jennifer Kehoe, who uh, she says in the subject line, Japanese maple woes. She said, hi, Charlie and Frank. So happy that you found a way to continue to broadcast during these times. I've attached a couple of pictures of my poor Japanese maple that has half died this year. It actually started last summer. The tree began to turn to fall colors in August, which we knew was a sign of distress, and now half the tree has died. So I'm going to assume it cannot be saved and will need to be replaced. Can you recommend something, or should we try another Japanese maple? We cannot have a large tree in that spot and do not want anything messy with flowers, etc. This is a spot right next to our pool. I'm down in uh, Windsor, Ontario, and always listen in on the podcast. All the best from Jennifer. Okay, great question and some pretty interesting pictures as well. Um, for those mm. of you that are wondering what these pictures look like, yes, indeed, the, the maple looks very sad, very unhappy, and literally half dead. I mean, she took a picture, you know, a face-on picture. We've got leaves on the left side and all naked uh, dead wood on the right side. So to try and save that plant would be tough. You do an awful lot of pruning. And when she showed us a picture of the trunk, the trunk is in deep doo-doo as well. It's really lost a lot of bark uh, and unlikely to really survive. <clears throat> I think a Japanese maple is a good choice in that spot. It does need, you know, it's a fairly small plant, right? A Japanese maple is, is like a shrub, um, depending on the variety you choose. Some get fairly big, but some stay quite small. So they do fit nicely into small spots. So I would plan to remove it for sure. In terms of recommending best plant to go into that area. I, I would like a little more information though. I, she hasn't indicated the amount of sun or shade that gets into that corner. It's a real corner in there. It looks like they're sort of their back corner of their garden. So how much sun, how many hours of sun, how many hours of shade, or is it kind of a dappled shade? Uh, and what's the soil like there? Because a, a Japanese maple, I mean, most plants, generally speaking, want a well-drained, fertile soil. So well-drained, meaning not soggy, uh, and a soil that, that has got some fertility to it. It's it's got some organic matter in it. It's got some oomph to it. It's not just pure clay and it's not pure sand. You know, it's not pure anything. It's a nice mix. And that's what a loam is, right? It's a mix of all those things. So, you know, a little more information for me to truly be able to give the best recommendation. But it looks like that Japanese maple has lived there for a number of years. So for sure, I would remove it. Consider replacing it with the same thing, but do supplement the soil. Get that composted manure, you know, get that uh, homemade compost. Get Get that leaf mulch, get all kinds of things into that soil, make it really, really fluffy and full of organic material, and any plant will thrive. Okie dokie. I think we have time for one more question before our next break. This is from Ellen Arsenault. Uh, she says, there's a white residue on my mature boxwoods. Looks like powder, but it's sticky to touch. Do you know what this may be? And if it's something I can rectify. Okay, so this is kind of a long answer, but I'll go as fast as I can. So boxwood are buxus species. They're small evergreen, uh, very, very popular shrubs. They're used for small hedges or borders for anybody who's not sure what a boxwood is. A close-up picture would have been helpful. Um, there are insects like scale 
and insects like mealybug that are white and extrude honeydew, which is sticky. So it could be that, could be insects. And if so, get a hold of a, just an all-purpose insecticide like a bug be gone. Follow the instructions very closely and you should be able to eliminate these insects. It will take more than one spray, I'll remind you. Um, the other thing is it could be boxwood blight. Boxwood blight is a fairly new fungal disease. It's been on Ontario just for the last six years coming over from Europe. Number one, best thing to do is early detection. So we prune out anything that looks uh, white and sticky and appears to be fungal in nature rather than an insect. Uh, remember to disinfect your pruners in between your cutting. Remember, uh, remove the plants. If they're highly infested, remove them. Do not compost them. Take them right off the property. Replace with varieties that are resistant to boxwood blight, including any of the green series. So green gem, green mountain, green velvet are resistant to boxwood blight. Um, plant in situations where it's not too shady, not too humid. Uh, remember, all fungal diseases will grow happily in dank, humid, dark spots. So get these plants out into the open and into the sun. So remember, uh, avoid wetting leaves if you can. I can't stop the rain, but when you're irrigating, make sure your irrigation is to the ground only. Um, and mulch will help with any splash up from the soil. So a mulch at the base of the plants and always, always good garden hygiene. So that means cleaning up any debris around plants, particularly if you are suspecting a fungal disease. You never want to leave any fungus-infested plant material on the soil near the plants to reinfect the plants. So that's my best solution. It's either insects or maybe boxwood blight. Pictures would help. <laughs> Thanks. Okay. Thank you, Charlie. Uh, we got to take a next break here on the show, but be back very shortly. Charlie Dobbin, The Garden Show here on Zuma Radio. Well, here we go with the more questions, Charlie, and uh, this is from Alicia Buffalo. She says, my garden is desperate. She says, dear Charlie, I have an awful luck with flowers and edible plants. I never feel comfortable with how much or what to fertilize and how to do it, etc. So I just water and every so often toss on some all-purpose fertilizer. Now, I do not use commercial insecticides, but rather make my own with vinegar solution. Still, weeds remain an issue. My current problem is this. I decided to plant a vegetable garden as one last attempt at gardening. We ordered topsoil that included compost. I added peat, vegetable compost, pure light, and did raised rows of pots. I tried to do companion planting by keeping away from things that did not like each other. My soil, however, is still hard as a rock. Needless to say, I don't know what to do because the plants are in the ground already and they are young. Some started with seeds, tomatoes, cucumbers, peppers, onions, leeks, cilantro, garlic, etc. I live in zone 6A as best as I can tell. How do I fix this soil problem? Please help, <laughs> says Alicia. There you go. Okay, I feel your pain. Uh, you're absolutely right. You, we cannot ever grow good gardens, good garden plants, get a good harvest, have beautiful flowers without amazing soil. It all starts with the soil. So you're bang on, Alicia. That's your soil is is so so important. Now you indicate that you you order topsoil that included compost. You've added all kinds of wonderful amendments, which is great. So. 
I'm confused as to why the soil is still hard as a rock. Could it be that <clears throat> it's just such bad soil to start with that it's just going to be a very slow process to uh, improve it? Um, I can tell you a little backstory. When I moved to my Richmond Hill garden all those years ago, it was pure clay. I mean, I was I was kind of flipping and flopping. You know, should I be opening up a pottery studio or should I be attempting to garden here? It was just slippery, slimy clay everywhere. Now, 25 years later, I left behind amazing soil, but I did so many things things to improve that soil over the years. And the best thing I ever did, excuse me, was I stopped digging in all these fancy amendments and buying all these things, though that's not true. I did continue to buy some composts, but I made a lot of my own compost and I used leaves. I used all the neighborhood leaves, uh, chopped up maple leaves on the surface of the soil every fall leave them there all winter and let the worms do the work. And they will. The worms will do the work for you. They will chew those leaves up and they'll pull them down under the soil. You don't have to dig. You don't have to do anything fancy. You can help keep down weeds by using um, a bark mulch after you've done your planting, two to four inches thick, so five to 10 centimeters of a crushed bark. And that will help keep in moisture. It'll help keep in, um, keep down the weeds from, from getting going. And it will also slowly decompose and add some of that important organic matter. So uh, I like, I don't know what to say. I mean, you could even mulch with straw if you had access to that. That's a, again, a good way to keep down the weeds, keep in the moisture and continue to add organic matter every spring, every fall, every chance you get. Um, And don't give up. Like, don't say, you know, there's just no hope. There's always hope if you just keep working at it and, you know, work, start small. If you can only bring in so much compost and so much topsoil, then keep it in a small area. And remember, if you're gardening in pots, you're using potting soil, not any of this topsoil that you ordered in. Topsoil is goes in the ground. It's a you know garden soil. And com- um, potting soil goes in the pot. So keep those two things very separate as well. Okie dokie. Um, it's just a reminder to folks maybe just tuning in. This is The Garden Show, and we are recording this show. But we do need your emails for next week's show. So please send any questions along to Charlie Dobbin. And here's her email address, c.dobbin, that's D-O-B-B-I-N, at mzmedia.com. Okay, next question from Marian Jensen. Potatoes, the subject. She says, I have a couple of potato plants coming up from ones I must have missed last year. Are they okay to be harvested this fall, and could they be transplanted now? Oh, oh, a nice little note here. You and Frank are our highlight of our Saturday AM. Thanks. Thank you for that, Marion. <laughs> I know. Isn't that nice? I like to hear that I'm the highlight of somebody's Saturday. So, uh, yes, indeedy. Absolutely, Marion. You missed a few potatoes, which, you know, is never a good thing. You want to actually dig up all your potatoes if you can. But if you do miss a few and you see them coming up in the spring following having harvested the fall before, then uh, plan to harvest those this summer. And transplanting is a very good idea because, remember, we want to rotate our crops. So you don't want to leave the potatoes where they were last year. So if you can dig those up and you can transplant them to a new location, and and particularly if you enjoyed those potatoes last season, they're going to be the same potatoes, uh, then do that. Transplant, get them into that new spot. Um, Remember as well, any green potatoes or soft potatoes we do not eat. So if for any reason those potato, the tubers, have ended up with some any kind 
kind of rot. They'll be soft and they go directly into the garbage. Uh, if there's any green in the potatoes because they're near the surface and they start to produce chlorophyll and turn green, we do not eat those either. So assuming that what's in your garden now is still under the ground and you can move it, do so. Uh, and then remember, of course, we, we plant in such a way that we hill about every three, two to three to four weeks, depending on how things are growing, we will kick soil up around the base of our potato plants to ensure that the tubers that are growing beneath the surface are not being exposed to sunshine. So hilling is an ongoing process with potatoes all season, but then you get the amazing crop starting, depending on when you want to start harvesting, whether it's August or September or October. So for sure, don't waste them, eat them. <laughs> Good stuff. Okay, you know, it's always nice to hear from old friends, isn't it? Charlie, we have a question here from someone you worked with years ago at White Rose putting together the Garden Guide. I'm sure you remember Linda McMillan, right? Oh, absolutely. She and I are still in touch and, and uh, see each other every chance we can. Well, she says, I listen to your show every Saturday. You're a wealth of knowledge and so down-to-earth, pun intended. I just purchased my favorite plant, a whipping lace-leaf Japanese maple. However, the plant tag says they can grow up to two meters wide and up to three meters tall. My garden space is small alongside a fence, so how can I maintain a reasonable size? And do you have any transplanting tips? That from Linda McMillan. Thank you, Linda. Nice to hear from you. And uh, th that is just so funny. So there Linda is. She's off at the garden center. She sees this weeping Japanese maple. She loves it. It's her favorite plant. She buys it, puts it in her car, brings it home, and then reads the plant tag. Like, you know, hello. <laughs> yeah. This is the woman who helped me. You know, she worked with me to produce the garden guide. You know, plant tags, we read them at the store, not at home. But anyway, it's done. And it's a nice looking plant because Linda did send a photograph of it and it's a, you know, it's a good looking plant. Now I know she is planting it into a situation with what we would call indirect light. So it's not getting a lot of um, uh, very like strong uh, sun, which is good because that will keep the, the fern leaf part of it looking good, the lace leaf part of those leaves, not all crispy. Amend your soil. I know that again, it's a clay area where she's, she's uh, doing her digging and planting. So if necessary, when you're digging and you find that crappy clay, dig it out and throw it out in the garbage or, you know, <laughs> lose it somewhere else. Don't be planting any Japanese maples into solid clay. So add lots of organic matter. <clears throat> That's compost, it's composted manure, it's coffee grounds, it's wherever you want to get, whatever you want to get, get that organic matter around that Japanese maple. Prune off any of the dead wood right away that you see on the plant, so that's tips. Once it's out of the pot, if it's root bound, like if you see just solid mass of roots in the shape of the pot, get out your a sharp knife, it could be a, a butcher knife, slice vertically into the root ball with that knife, about a half an inch or a centimeter into the root ball so a good clean sharp slices down that root ball uh, and then of course into the ground at the same level or just a little bit higher than it was growing in the pot in terms of the soil level no fertilizer required this year at all just a good watering when you get it into the ground and then of course keep track of the watering feel the soil around the plant um, and you can start fertilizing next spring 
Now, once that plant gets established and the roots get growing and it becomes, wants to be three meters tall, then some, some pruning will be required. Uh, it's very common. A happy Japanese maple often gets too big for its spot. So you might have to invite me for dinner or something and I'll have to come and do that pruning for you. Or we can do a whole pruning seminar in a couple of years once you're in a position where we need to uh, look at uh, shrinking that plant down. But it will be dwarfed by the environment. It's, it's in a situation where it's narrow garden up against a fence. So it's not going to go just absolutely crazy on you as far as I can tell. And it'll be years if that were to happen. All right. Okay. Hey, that's great. Um, have an, I love your little addendum here. Uh, you say Aldina again. Boy, she's got this system figured out. <laughs> so she sent you a photo. I, for some reason, I couldn't open it. But she said, do you know if this plant on the left is a weed or not? Okay, this is a good question. I love the, the idea of what's a weed because one person's weed, of course, is another person's, you know, favorite flower. Um, to, I was to identify this weed because, yes, it, I consider this a weed. I pull this plant out. Um, I'm not exactly sure what it is. I think it's a member of the Goosefoot family or the Chenopodiaceae, but I'm not 100% sure. I did pull out my old Ontario Weeds book from Ontario Ministry of Agriculture and Food from 1992 just to get some insights to see if maybe I could identify this weed. Because sometimes people, they say, do you know what this weed is? And I, does it matter what it's called? Just know it's a weed, right? Just know you're going to pull it out. What it's called, doesn't matter. But um, but this old 1992 book is so on trend with so many things that we're now promoting growth of. So prickly ash, as an example, um, milkweed, catnip, uh, all, a whole bunch of plants, which are favorite foods of specific animals and insects, are being touted as weeds that need to be eradicated, uh, particularly in the agriculture, in the fields where, um, you know, the cows, etc., are browsing. We don't want poisonous plants of course, for where the horses and cows are. But a lot of these things, milkweed as an example, got so, had such a bad rap, and now all of a sudden everybody's growing it. So it's interesting what's a weed. But that one you've shown in the picture, yes, pull it. Keep track of it. It will grow in all kinds of places in your garden, and it seeds like crazy. Okay, uh, we are approaching our next break, but before we do, I'd just like to comment on the fact that a number of people now are sending you pictures along with their questions, which I assume is really helpful for you to try and help them out. For sure, absolutely. Um, much easier, but probably a little harder for the radio listeners because yeah. they can't see what I can see. <laughs> exactly. But anyway, if you want to send your questions along, including a photo, by all means, please do. It's c.dobbin, that's D-O-B-B-I-N, at mzmedia.com. I give uh, Charlie a little break, time to let her catch her breath as we move along here on this Saturday morning on Zuma Radio AM 740. I'm Frank Proctor, the sous chef of the garden, and we'll return in just moments here on Zuma Radio. Daffodils and daisies, bluebells and begonias, Forsythia and foxgloves, marigolds, magnolia, lavender and lupins, dahlias, delphiniums, stalks, fox, hollyhocks, tulips and sweet williams. You've picked the right place for everything floral. This is The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin, exclusively on Zoomer Radio. 
Well, here we are, uh, Charlie, on a Saturday morning. Lots more questions ahead on the show, including one for Tarek Mansour. says, hi, Charlie. I have a question for you, please. Uh, also is attached a picture. I hope you can help me out. I have a hedge of mature cedars. Now, all of a sudden, one has turned totally brown. Others are also starting to show some brown branches as well. What might be the cause of this, and what can I do about it? Tarek, in Oakville, Ontario. Yeah, this is a little bit of a tough one. It's not unusual or anything to worry about when some needles turn brown, particularly on cedars. It's very normal, because, you know, we call them evergreens, right? But but cedars aren't really evergreen. They The, the needles or the, the leaves on our evergreens can last up to three years, but they do at some point turn yellow and drop. But it's the mature ones, so it's the inside needles on a cedar that we would expect to drop, not the ones on the outside, because the outside of the plant is the new growth or the tips. So interior leaf drop or needle drop, perfectly normal. Exterior, not so normal. So I would put on some gloves <clears throat> and I'd comb that plant with my fingers combing upwards and I would see what happens. I'd see, do they fall off easily, those, those needles? And while they're dropping to the ground, which they likely will, I'd be looking really closely for any kind of webbing because spider mites can be a huge problem in cedars. Uh, if we do suspect spider mites, then I would be uh, getting a hold of a soap solution. So a safer soap or an insecticidal soap to spray the plants. Um, if those plants ha suffered last summer, because crazy thing about trees is we see something going on and we think it's something that's going on right now, but often it's because of something that happened last year or the year before that, or even the year before that, like construction compaction to soil. The tree is fine for a couple of years after the construction, but then the tree starts to deteriorate and it's like, what's going on? It's like, well, three years ago, there was a bunch of heavy trucks on this soil and the poor little roots got, you know, the soil got so compacted, the roots are now showing the damage. So think back, did anything happen around that seat, that hedge that could have caused this damage to show up now? Um, like drought, we've had some hot summers. If we do end up in a drought situation in the summer, we have to water our trees and our shrubs. So keeping that soil not wet, but moist in a hot, droughty time will ensure that we have healthy plants in the future. Um, again, too much water, same thing. Cedars, you can rot the roots of cedars if we have irrigation that's coming on too often. Uh, during the, when it's raining, we've got irrigation running, we can end up rotting the roots. So too much water, not enough water, pests, a couple of things could, could be causing the problem. Bottom line is, if this is an important hedge, and it does look very unsightly that the one plant is so brown in amongst all that green, um, I would call a certified arborist. Remember, an arborist will come onto your property and look at what's going on and tell you what their analysis is, and then you can hire them or not to come back and do the treatment that they're recommending. So uh, lots, there's lots of arborists in the Oakville area. Through Landscape Ontario, you can also find certified arborists. So uh, get somebody onto the property if necessary, if you can't sort this out yourself. But uh, based on the picture, it, it does look a bit devastating. Yeah, I was, as you were speaking, just wondering, uh, Charlie, if perhaps those uh, cedars are near a roadway, and could that be a problem? I'm thinking of salt during the wintertime, etc. Yeah, it's a good suggestion, Frank, but you would see it more across all 
all the cedars. It's okay. because there's one that's just so brown standing out as a beacon in amongst all that green. So we don't, I wouldn't suspect spray. I mean, maybe something got poured at the base of that plant, right? Like some, yeah, like salt or whatever, mm-hmm. some toxic something. Uh, because those, are a sta- those aren't cedars that were planted in the last year or two. Those cedars have been there at least, at least 10 years. And they obviously were green. So something has happened to one in particular. And like he said, it appears to be spreading. So I probably suspect a pest more than anything, like like a spider mite. Um, and there are some other insects that are problems on cedars. So, you know, like I said, important hedge, call a certified arborist. Okay, this might be the advice too for this next question. In from Anne Bray from Dundas, Ontario. She says, morning, Charlie. My red Japanese maple has three branches that have no leaves on it. We planted it last year. Wondering if I should cut the branches without leaves. Seems like an obvious thing to do, but I don't have a lot of experience with this beautiful tree. Thank you, Anne. Okay, so we're getting quite a few Japanese maple questions this week, aren't we? Um, it's yeah. very, very normal in the spring to, d- to discover that our Japanese maples have some dead stuff on them. Absolutely common, happens every spring all across Ontario. So the first thing we do is we get out there with our sharp pruners and remo- we remove anything dead. So if it's three whole branches, then yep, you're going to have to go right back on the dead branches to live wood. Even if you're taking yourself right back to the main stem of the plant, you're going to have sharp pruners or a sharp limbing saw or sharp loppers, whatever you need, depending on the size of the branches. And you're going to make nice clean cuts. Uh, and you're going to do this when it's not raining. So absolutely, yes, always, always clean up the dead, then stand back and look at the plant and say, oh, now it looks very lopsided. So now we cut off some of the live wood to balance out where we've removed the dead wood because you don't want a plant that's all just growing on one side or, or super lopsided. So do not be afraid to do some pruning into the live wood after you remove the dead wood to make the plant look nice. And remember, a Japanese maple is a piece of sculpture and should be grown as such. Okay. Uh, boy, we have a lot of questions. Re-trees this morning. Uh, we're coming up to our next break here, and I, I fear I wouldn't be leaving you enough time to answer our next question, which I'll get to in just moments from Diane Cavanaugh. So uh, we're going to take our break right now and then come back and answer a question about a magnolia tree branch and some damage there. You're listening to The Gardening Show here on Zoomer Radio with Charlie Dobbin. I'm Frank Proctor. Thank Thanks for being with us. Don't change stations just because the weather changes. Garden tips and advice all year round. This is The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin, exclusively on Zoomer Radio. Well, Charlie, uh, I mentioned that this note is from Diane Cavanaugh, Magnolia Tree Branch uh, Damage. She says, hi, Charlie. Thanks for continuing your educational program during the COVID outbreak. A few years ago, one of the main large branches broke right off to the main trunk. Insects are now burrowing into the opening, and I've seen the woodpecker pecking at it. See the brown branch on the uh, on the branch. Uh, I have since removed it. What should I do? Obviously, she sent you a, a picture. Ye- she- oh, you didn't get the picture. Yes, she did. She oh, No, okay. I didn't. Yeah, I never know when I forward these emails whether the whole thing forwards or just it sounds like most cases it's just the um, the copy, the text that comes through. Yeah. Um, 
Okay, so this photograph uh, doesn't really show me where that main branch broke off of the magnolia. Uh, but right away, she's bang on. Uh, you see woodpeckers pecking at your tree, at the, bar- you know, the bark of your tree. You know you've got insects there because woodpeckers do not just peck for the sheer joy of it. They peck for food. So she also says she has seen insects burrowing into the opening. So I I get the sense that when this large branch broke off, it left a wound, a raw wound, not a clean, I mean, they never, when a branch breaks, it's never going to leave a clean wound behind. So it's our job to clean up when a branch breaks, whether it's big wind or just a bad, um, what we would call a a weak crotch on the way the the tree has grown and we get snow load or ice load or wind and then branches break. We need to go back after that happens with a nice sharp tool and clean up that the wound to help it heal. It will, a raw ragged wound will not heal. And of course, here we are, like she said, a couple of years later, insects have moved in. So what do you do? I'm going to recommend a certified arborist again because without me being able to see how what that wound looks like, an arborist will either be able to clean that up and treat treat for the insects that are currently in the tree. It's a good-sized magnolia. It's definitely been in this garden for yeah, 10, 15 years, so it's not you know planted last week or anything. Um, it obviously is beautiful and lends some gorgeous flowers and, and grace to the garden. So to save that tree, I would be calling in somebody who knows what they're doing, which is a certified arborist who can not only inject an insecticide and hopefully kill whatever insects are living in the tree, but clean up the wound in such a way that the insects will not move back in and then the tree will regain its health. Or the recommendation will be to just remove it and start again. So I don't know based on the picture what's the best thing. Okay. Uh, Next question again with trees, this time a chestnut, and you and I will fondly remember the time we went to High Park and picked some of those uh, chestnuts off the ground. Anyway, Acorns, baby. A- 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 pardon a- me. Yeah, acorns. A- oh. We grow chestnut trees from chestnuts and oak trees from acorns, and oh. High Park is full of oak trees. Boy, she, she beat me up this morning. Okay. Uh, this, this <laughs> My question. chance. I finally got a chance. Yeah. Irene Smith sends this note in. says, Hi, Charlie. Love listening to your show. I learned something the new each Saturday morning. Now, last October, I picked three chestnuts off the ground and kept them in soil in a Ziploc in the crisper of my fridge over the winter. In May, I removed them and planted into separate pots. All had sprouted a taproot. See my photo attached. They are doing well. I was able to open this one, Charlie, and they, they look great. My question is, when do I transplant and how they'll be going to cottage country about two hours north of Toronto. Thank you for your help, Irene Smith. I'd say congratulations to Irene Smith. You did a phenomenal job. They look great. Just as Frank, even Frank the non-gardener can see that these, these yes. little seedlings look very happy. <laughs> so, okay, I'm not sure whether they're inside or outside. Often when we plant from the crisper, uh, well, in May, uh, Irene says she took them out of the, the crisper and planted them up. So I'm not sure if they're outside or not, but they do need to get outside if they are inside now, once we're frost free. I'd be taking them out every day during the day. Uh, when it's getting cool at night, bring them in and slowly but surely toughen them up so that they're used to the real world, the real outside world. And we call that hardening off. That takes about 10 days to two weeks. Now, now your challenge is when to plant them outside. 
It's nice to get them out of the pot and get them planted outside, but they're such small little seedlings right now, and you know these are going to be monster trees eventually. So you're, to plant them at the cottage now, you're going to, you should be planting them you know, 20 feet apart out in some big open field somewhere, um, minimum. Now that means they're going to get stepped on or a lawnmower is going to run them over because they're, so if you can plant them in their permanent location and fence them in such a way that nobody steps on them or runs them over, then do that this summer. If you can't do that because you can't um, put them, be sure that they'll be safe in their, what will be their future location, then keep them in the pots, uh, keep them for the next couple of years. You're going to have to repot them into bigger pots probably next spring. I'd leave them for this spring and I'd probably just bury the pots into an, an, an open garden area. They can be quite close together, obviously still in the pots, but the idea is you want to get them in their final location as soon as possible because those those tap roots are tricky. They're hard to keep in pots for very long. It's nice to get them out into the ground and, and happily ensconced in their, their real world as soon as you possibly can. So it just really depends whether you can you know, keep them safe wherever they're going. All right? Well, Charlie, we have a, another uh, note in from Diane Cavanaugh. Good for you, Diane. It's about her Musa Bansju bamboo tree. She says, hello, I was given the above tree, size two feet. Would like to know, can you grow the tree outdoors in Toronto all winter, or would I need to bring it indoors? I read it, I read it's considered zone four. Now, can it be grown in a large pot and brought into the garage for winter? Thanks for sharing your exceptional knowledge, Diane. Okay, this is a fun one. There's, it's, it is a banana. It's commonly referred to as a Japanese banana. Uh, is it zone four? I'm not so sure. Everything I'm reading, it's a zone five in the United States, which is considered a zone six in Canada. Will it survive outside? Uh, in Toronto, probably not. But also keep in mind, it's really, you're growing it for its foliage. It's not going to give you fruit. There's no not going to be flowers. There's not going to be bananas. But it is fun and big and tropical. So rather than um, risking leaving it outside in the winter, I would bring it inside if you've got a big enough place to bring it in, sunny spot, sunny window, treat it like a houseplant, uh, water as necessary in the winter, and let it grow on to go outside the following uh, season once we're frost free. Or if you don't have room for that, then you're going to have to trim it down. And then, yes, you could potentially store it in the garage for winter as long as the garage is frost-free. So frost-free, trim down. It's currently two feet. By the end of the summer, it's going to be four feet. So trim it down to about three feet before you put it in the garage. Um, at some point, the pot's going to be too big to move around. Uh, maybe if you keep it alive. So you will, at that point, start taking it right out of the pot in the, in the fall trimming roots, trimming stems, trimming everything back, wrapping it all up in plastic, believe it or not, for the winter in a cool, dark, frost-free location, and then you'll repot it in the spring. So have fun with that. I've had a, I've grown it myself, and it does get big. <laughs> okay, you know what? We're looking at the last few seconds of the show here oh, on oh. Zoomer Radio for this Saturday. In any case, boy, it's been all about trees today for mm -hmm. some reason, eh? It is, yeah. A lot of people are t totally in their gardens, there's no question. Thinking about their trees, uh, looking closely at them, which is great. I love it. I love that everybody's getting so much into the garden this year. It's a, it's a good year for that. 
And a reminder, folks, we still need your emails for next week's show. So please drop a line, uh, an email to Charlie Dobbin, and here's her address, c.dobbin, that's D-O-B-B-I-N at mzmedia.com. Thank you, Charlie. Great show this morning. Yeah, thanks so much for your help, Frank. Couldn't do any of this without you. You stay safe and say hi to Shirley for me. Will do. Thanks to all our great listeners who sent great questions. See you all again next week. This has been an exclusive podcast of The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin. Heard every Saturday morning at 9 on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.